La Jolla Pharmaceutical Company is a biopharmaceutical company focused on the discovery, development, and commercialization of innovative therapies to improve outcomes in patients suffering from life-threatening diseases. The company's lead clinical program is for the treatment of catecholamine-resistant hypotension in ICU patients. For more information, please visit www.lahoyapharmaceutical.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Lachmir S. Chawla, MD, about future research related to the Congress session, bench pressing in the ICU, which vasopressor agent should I choose for my patient, which he presented at the 45th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida. Dr. Chawla is an intensivist and a nephrologist and is professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Mink. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? Yes, in fact, I do. I am currently on sabbatical at a company called the Hoya Pharmaceutical Company, and this company is currently uh, working on a phase three clinical trial for a familiar drug, angiotensin II, in the treatment of shock, and I will be currently at this post for another six to 12 months. Okay, thank you. Would you start by giving us some background on the current state of affairs of shock and therapy, what options we have for vasopressors, how do we know which one to use, and sort of how did we get here? Sure. Thank you so much. You know, it's very interesting when you are on rounds and you talk to your new fellows and they sort of ask you, why do you do what you do? One of the first questions that often comes up is, why do we select the MAP target that we have? I wouldn't say this is universal, but I would say that in my travels and going to many meetings, the general view is that when patients are hypotensive, most clinicians will select a minimum MAP target of between 60 and 70. You know, which is interesting because 90 over 60 clinically is what we sort of think of as hypotensive below that threshold. And that results in a map of around 70. And there are not fantastic data to defend why it's 60 to 70, but it appears to be where we collectively have arrived. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I think we can leave to another debate or conversation. But generally, we agree to defend this MAP target. And once we resuscitate the patients and give them what we view to be a reasonable or sufficient amount of volume and they remain hypotensive, we deploy vasopressors. And when I first started training, really the selection was which catecholamine. Should it be dopamine? Should it be norepinephrine? Should it be phenylephrine? Should it be some combination? And as you look back in the literature, there is a host of studies that attempted to guide us and tell us which one was which. And as I'm sure you recall, there was a period of time where norepinephrine, known as levofed, was the last drug that we added, and it came with a very bad connotation. And now norepinephrine appears to be, for the vast majority of intensivists, for patients with least distributive shock, our first selection, which I think is a very reasonable choice. But over the past 10 years, Landry reinvigorated this question about bringing back vasopressin. Vasopressin was available to clinicians for a very long time, but in its use, particularly in the treatment of patients with esophageal varices and bleeding varices, we came to recognize that high-dose vasopressin had some pretty significant toxicity related to cardiac ischemia and mesenteric ischemia, and it fell dramatically out of favor. But it's come back, and we recognize that low-dose vasopressin may have a role for decreasing catecholamine load. This has been further complicated by 
by the VAST trial, which demonstrated no improvement in mortality with the use of azopressin, and now more recently, Tony Gordon's publication of VANISH, which looked at specific subsets in conjunction with steroid use and also did not show a mortality benefit. And like so many things in critical care, it feels like Groundhog Day and we're back to the beginning of which vasopressin do we select? And I think it's, it's, it's something which we're used to in critical care. You know, the steroid question appears to have a similar sort of Groundhog Day feel to it. And I think that's currently where we are now. And my lecture was about two new vasopressors which are in development and how we might think about them and how they might be able to be added to the arsenal that the intensivist has at the bedside. Well, why do we need something more? We've got an assortment of catecholamines, as you said, and we've got vasopressin, which isn't better than norepinephrine, but, you know, maybe a reasonable alternative. Why do we need something else? Yeah, so I think that's exactly correct. That's the right question. I think that for a large proportion of our patients, we actually don't need anything more. I think we're able to take care of them, resuscitate them, and effectively rescue them with what we have. There is a significant subset of patients, and every intensivist has taken care of such a patient, where the patient simply outruns you. They come in, they're profoundly inflammatory. It's not always endotoxemia, but it's typically a patient with a large gram-negative load, not infrequently a person with, say, a small bowel obstruction with a massive aspiration, or someone who's perforated a viscous and has an abdomen full of pus. These patients, and we've all taken care of them, you volume resuscitate them, you give them norepinephrine, you give them more norepinephrine, then you give them vasopressin, then you give them epinephrine, and then the voodoo begins. Then you start with methylene blue or B12 or intravenous ibuprofen or high-volume hemofiltration or all sorts of other techniques that have very poor evidence around them, but we all feel the deep desperation of a patient who was previously healthy, who's now simply outrunning you and you're unable to defend their blood pressure. And these two new vasopressors may have a role in that patient. And there is something to be informed, at least in my view, about a different approach to a patient who, for lack of a better term, we can say has catecholamine-resistant hypotension. So what are the two agents that are potentially coming down the road? So the the first uh, agent is an agent called celepressin, which is a VA1 agonist. So if you look at the different receptors that vasopressin hits, it doesn't just hit one or two. It hits quite an assortment, V1A, V2A, V2, and it also elaborates oxytocin. Some of these other receptors can cause some vasodilation, and the V2 receptor is essentially the receptor that DDAVP hits and associated with increased water retention. So the preclinical data suggests that specifically in patients with ARDS or with issues with lung water, not hitting that V2 might be beneficial. And there is some data in preclinical work that suggests that there may be less capillary leak with celepressin. And so one can imagine that if celepressin is in fact a better vasopressin, that it might have significant advantages in being added to catecholamines. The other thing which is becoming increasingly clear is that all drugs, as we know, have a therapeutic window. And in fact, water has a therapeutic window. If you gave someone enough water Mm -hmm. fast enough, you can induce hyponatremia and cause them to seize. And some of us have clinically seen this in profound psychogenic polydipsics. Mm -hmm. So catecholamines have a 
toxicity profile as well. And what that precise threshold is, is not entirely clear, but somewhere when you go above between 0.2 to 0.5 micrograms per kilo per minute of norepinephrine or epinephrine, we begin to see toxicity. Um, and epinephrine, we're familiar with seeing lactic acidosis. There are also data that suggest that there's significant immunoparalysis and higher bacterial load concentrations. And there's also significant concern about excessive beta-adrenergic stimulation, which can lead to cardiac dysfunction and cardiac injury. And so there is a notion of being able to use a vasopressin-like drug or vasopressin itself to decrease that load. And I think one of the compelling attributes of celopressin is that if it created the ability to decatecholamize, if we can make up that word for a moment, or at least decrease the catecholamine load, that might be advantageous. That, of course, needs to be tested, and celopressin is currently uh, in the midst of a 2B clinical trial to test precisely which dose of celopressin might give some advantages and therapeutic response in patients with shock. And the other agent is angiotensin II, I think you said earlier. That's right. And so just to uh, further elaborate, this is a molecule that I've been working on for quite some time, which informs my current sabbatical. And, you know, the reason angiotensin II came to my particular interest is that because I'm a nephrologist and an intensivist, you know, acute kidney injury is near and dear to my heart, and it's been an area that I've spent a lot of time doing some research. And, you know, Ronaldo Bolomo's group in Melbourne, Australia, did a study about 10 years ago wherein they used angiotensin II in a sheet model to demonstrate that it actually improves outcomes in acute kidney injury. And, you know, when I was in fellowship and when I was a junior attending, I propagated the teachings that I had, which were that acute kidney injury was primarily driven by decreased renal blood flow. It turns out that if you look at the literature and you look at animal studies and human data, and there are human data in distributive shock, the renal blood flow is actually increased in septic shock and in fact, distributive shock, and it's not decreased. But what is happening is the blood flow is going to all the wrong places, and the microcirculation is wildly disordered. And what Ronaldo's group demonstrated is the use of angiotensin II actually helps correct this defect and improve blood flow. There's also a large compelling literature because the bovine form of angiotensin II was an approved drug in the U.S. and Europe during the 1990s. And there are multiple cases where angiotensin II was successfully used to rescue patients who had catecholamine-resistant shock and were on very high-dose vasopressors. And so in looking at the aggregate data from Ronaldo's reinvigoration of this drug for acute kidney injury and the previous use of angiotensin II showing that it had a role at George Washington, we did a small pilot trial. And we sought to determine for human angiotensin II, which is now available, uh, at least for research purposes, whether it helps. And in patients with catecholamine-resistant hypotension, what we found were that 100% of patients responded to angiotensin II. And that was heartening because, you know, when patients are that wide open, vasodilated, their inducible nitric oxide is so jacked up. It wasn't entirely clear, at least to me, that everyone could respond to another vasoactive agent. So that data then got moved into a current phase three clinical trial. And the fundamental question that we're trying to answer is, 
does angiotensin II have a role in patients who are already on high-dose vasopressors, a catecholamine and vasopressin? And the primary hypothesis is as follows. If you look at all the major advances in clinical medicine over the past 30 years for difficult diseases, the overriding theme is multimode therapy. So a simple example is HIV. There are many drugs available that were effective and targeted the virus. But it wasn't until we found a cocktail of two or three or four that we could effectively get the virus under control. The same is true for hepatitis C. We need multimode therapy. Now, people will often say to me, well, you know, Mink, that's really not fair. That's an infectious disease. Infectious diseases we know have resistance patterns. And, you know, you're talking about multiple antimicrobials. And I say that's a fair critique of that assessment. But if you look at oncology, nobody gets just tamoxifen. They get multimode therapy. And that's how we've had success. And a similar person will say, well, that's really not fair. That's oncology, and that's, there's resistance patterns within tumors, and I think that's also fair. But let's think about a purely inflammatory disease like rheumatoid arthritis. No one is just getting a steroid. No one is just getting methotrexate. They get a combination of drugs. They get a TNF-alpha inhibitor, a little bit of steroid, a little bit of methotrexate. And it's through this combination therapy wherein we are able to control a previously uncontrollable inflammatory disease. And I think the simplest example is in the treatment of hypertension, the opposite of hypotension. Not one of our patients, not one, is on five grams of levetamol twice a day, right? <laughs> we come into their office, right. they're on 50 metoprolol, they're on 100 BID, and you say, time to add a second agent. Then you add a third agent, and the rationale is really simple keep the drugs in the therapeutic range, leverage synergy. But when I was a fellow, and when I was a junior attending, this is the approach in the ICU. Norepinephrine, more norepinephrine, more norepinephrine. (laughs) Then when you failed, you add vasopressin. And then you add, when all else has failed, epinephrine. Because the norepi hasn't hit that alpha receptor enough. And maybe, just maybe, if we give a little more beta it'll somehow make them better. And in my very humble view, that's not thoughtful. And so our approach is let's look at multimode therapy, not for a patient with mild shock. I don't think there's a role for it in mild shock, but for a patient who's outrunning you. You know, I mean, all of us have had this bedside experience, a young person who was previously healthy, and you look at them, and you know you're going to sign this patient out in a few hours. And you're going to sign out a patient who you know is probably going to die because you've done everything you know how to do. And you're already, you know, in the voodoo tray, pulling up methylene blue and all the goofy stuff. And they're outrunning you. I think it's the feeling for a clinician, like when a child outruns your grips or is running towards traffic, there's a sense of panic. And we think that there will be a role for a rescue vasopressor. And we think multimode approach is highly rational. So can, what, what can you tell us about the phase three trial that you're currently involved in using angiotensin two? So um, currently it's um, in its phase three study and it is uh, nearly completed. We will have uh, full data by the first quarter of 2017. 
And it's exciting to be running a shock trial. And basically, the study is set up in a way wherein patients have to be, through their inclusion and exclusion criteria, well resuscitated through objective measures and be on high-dose vasopressors and be in distributive shock. And those are the basic entry criteria. And then you can add in angiotensin II or placebo to see if it improves hemodynamics and allows for catecholamine sparing. And the intervention goes out to a 48-hour intervention. And the primary outcome measure will be a change in mean arterial pressure with secondary endpoints looking at SOFA score and catecholamine sparing. And of course, we'll be looking at survival metrics as well. Right. I would think a mortality endpoint, while it is certainly a hard endpoint, would be very difficult to demonstrate. Oh, yes. I think I think that's very right. And, you know, the conversation we had with the regulatory bodies was, was very straightforward. They recognized the role for vasopressors. It was very clear from us and um, for everyone involved that, you know, norepinephrine, if it was asked to get approved on a mortality benefit, today, it would not reach that threshold, nor would vasopressin, dopamine, phenylephrine, or any of the vasopressors we have. I don't think any intensivist would like to give up any of those medications in their toolbox. And so um, our view is that angiotensin II was previously available. It was previously effective in the available literature. And we want to bring it back primarily as a tool in the toolbox for a patient who is out running the clinician. And then hopefully that'll allow us a platform to do the more thoughtful studies about in which patient do you use it in to try and affect a mortality benefit. I think that we all recognize clinically that distributive shock is a syndrome. It's not a disease. And there are many ways to get to distributive shock. None of them good. You know, necrotizing mm-hmm. pancreatitis, profound septic shock, post-pump, vasopresis. There's lots of things that can get you there, but these patients are very different. And I think that if we tried to do a trial where we dumped everyone in to this gamish of a syndrome and attempted to use a single drug to go for a mortality benefit, I, I don't think any, anyone would think that was a thoughtful approach. So you're offering us angiotensin II instead of methylene blue? Well, we hope to have data to defend the fact that angiotensin II can help you with patients who remain hypotensive despite high-dose vasopressors. And I think that's a starting point. We believe that's a starting point. I think methylene blue could have a role. I'm not completely knocking methylene blue. It's a, it's a nitric oxide sink. There's some logic to it. There's only one, I believe, randomized controlled trial of it. I think it was either, I want to say it was 30 patients. It was a small study. And I, I'll speak for myself here, not trying to speak for a wider group, If I told you, Margaret, that I'm going to do a large study, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take patients with prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and lung cancer, and I'm going to then take these patients and I'm going to randomize them to two different regimens of chemotherapy, placebo versus CHOP or MOP or HOP or whatever (laughs) we're using these days because God knows I don't know. But let's just pick some random combination that's thoughtless, cytoxan, vincristine, and steroids. And I randomize these two patients, this set of patients, and I I do it Australian style. So I go big. I do 20,000 patients, and I randomize them. Does anyone think I'm going to show a positive result? Would anyone think and say, hey, Mink, that was a great study design? Would anyone say to me, don't worry, Mink, that you don't know the individual kinds of cancers. You'll just figure it out in a multivariate analysis at the end. And the multivariate analysis tells me the three variables are male sex, advanced age, and estrogen positivity and I'll go back and find that subset. Well, that should be a lot of fun. (laughs) 
So, so I just think that Point fundamentally taken. we don't understand our phenotypes. Yeah. And within sepsis, within distributive shock, there exists very specific diseases. The corollary of a prostate cancer versus a lung cancer mm-hmm. versus a uterine cancer. And when we understand those phenotypes, then I think you can say, okay, we're going to take all those patients with distributive shock who have X, and we're going to give those folks a therapy. I think that's very thoughtful. I think that makes a lot of sense. In the meantime, what do we do in critical care? We're not doing gene therapy. It's not like we're doing CRISPR and you know, overriding genes. We do the same thing for everybody. Mm-hmm. They come in, mm-hmm. we stabilize them, we provide organ support, we treat the underlying cause, and we let the patient try and get better. That's critical care in a nutshell. Yep, yep. And I think that putting a new tool in the toolbox to help defend blood pressure and to allow more effective support of organ systems is highly rational. And the reason why I feel so confident about this is that it was previously available and worked. So, you know, it's nice to have the data available to show that it worked to go back and try and do it again. Right. So where do we go from here? Well, uh, hopefully we will have uh, some compelling data to share with the critical care world in in the coming months and a year. And I think then if it's in fact what we expect it to be, and it is a drug that we can use to safely raise blood pressure, then I think we should thoughtfully test multimode therapy. And I think we should spend a lot of time trying to understand phenotypes. And in order to do that, it takes broad-based collaboration. You're not going to have a single center give you enough patients to do a phenotype. And I don't think phenotype means genotype, just for the record. I don't think that this is going to be driven by genotype because your genotype does not necessarily tell you what your gene product is. And maybe it's through RNA-seq or through robust RNA analyses, or maybe it's through advanced software and doing class selection. But I would really like to see the critical care community come together and do some very broad-based population metrics to try and understand our phenotypes. Because I think if a group of researchers offered up some candidate phenotypes, anyone in the realm of therapeutics can now go and test these people and see if they react or respond differentially to a therapeutic agent. And I think that would be a thoughtful way to proceed. And hopefully we'll have a new agent that we can add to the current tools in the toolbox to try and make some assessments and uh, some careful studies. Well, that is all really intriguing. And I will look forward to the results of your phase three trial. Do you have any final comments you want to make? No, I just want to say that um, one of the other things that the Society of Critical Care has done in our readings, which I think is really appropriate, is they've set recommendations for MAP targets. And um, I will tell you what's really interesting in going to Europe, which is where some of our centers are and being in Australia and New Zealand, one of the things which is really striking is everyone's MAP target around the world is different. And I think this is an area that we as intensivists should arrive at some basic consensus. This is completely independent of vasopressors. This is completely independent of any, you know, studies or work I'm working on. I I do think that this would be an area where it would be nice to see some consensus that's data-driven and not just opinion-based. And hopefully that's something that we as a community can also work on in the meantime. 
Great. Well, thank you for talking with us today, Ming. Much appreciated. Thank you for the time. We have been talking with Dr. Lakmir Chawla from George Washington University in Washington, D.C., about future research related to choice of vasopressors for your ICU patient. Bench pressing in the ICU. Which vasopressor agent should I choose for my patient? Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCriticalCare podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.